Okay, we are studying Hebrews chapter 2. We're about to enter a section where the Psalm 8 is cited. Hebrews 2 and verse 6. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him with, over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Alright? So we have here a section beginning here with verse um, 6 that cites Psalm 8. And the word testified, but as one is testified here means as a witness. So it directs the attention to the content rather than the author. There's a question, why is a citation of scripture introduced by something so big as one is testified somewhere? Well, he wants to draw attention to the scripture as a witness to what God has said and done. And there's various ways that scripture citations are introduced in Hebrews. Sometimes, and in the New Testament, sometimes it will say God says, sometimes it says the Holy Spirit says, sometimes it says David says. Maybe you just forgot the reference. Yeah, that could be. Maybe you forgot the reference. I know, we do that. Sometimes uh, we say, well, somewhere in the Bible, I know there's this verse that says. I do that a lot. Okay, so what is the testimony? What is man that thou remembers him, or the son of man that thou art concerned with him? Does anybody remember what prompted the psalmist to ask this question? What's Psalm 8 about, and why did he ask this question? Yeah, he was he was contemplating the creation. In a wilderness setting, you definitely notice that at night. You can see the heavens, you can see the vastness of the universe as far as at least the stars that are visible. And pondering the expanse of the creation and the power of God that created uh, this splendid creation, the psalmist wonders why God would be concerned about little old man, a little speck of nothing in the midst of a universe that's so huge that it's unfathomable how huge it is. And uh, I think it's a very humbling and a very good question. Let's look up some passages. Let's uh, start over here with uh, uh, Sam Madrid. Could you look up Job 7, 17 and 18 and Norma, Psalm 144, 3 and Artist Isaiah 40 and verse 17. What is man? Job 7, 17, and 18, as soon as you find it. Okay. What is man that thou magnifies him, and that thou shouldst set thy heart upon him, and that thou shouldst visit him every morning, and try him every morning? 
Same question is asked in the book of Job, more wisdom literature. Uh, Psalm 144.3. Lord, Okay. So we're, there's several people ask the same question. I remember asking that question or contemplating it just a couple days or a day before I became a Christian. Uh, there was a several month period after I became a believer in God before I actually became a Christian. I became a believer in God for studying science, and, and I told you about that story many times, but there was a, there was a time lag there between science showing me there had to be a creator and the gospel showing me that I was a sinner and I needed to prepare. Right? And during that time lag, I was contemplating the meaning of life and who God was and what, and just these same questions. And I remember one such moment of contemplation, I was thinking, alright, I know there's a God and I know that He created us and we're here for some reason. But what does he care what we do? In other words, I was I was thinking, why would, why do I have to go to some church and submit to a bunch of rules and have these religious people tell me how to live my life? Because that was what I was being faced with, and at least how I could perceive it with my not total understanding of the gospel. That's just all I could see is that these religious people wanted me to come in and submit to them, and they're going to tell me how to live. And so in my thinking about God and man as a still unregenerate person, my thought was, if God is so great and powerful and he owns this vast universe, what am I hurting him because I want to go to a few parties? Okay, this is my 20-year-old college mind, you know. Is, it, is God going to be any the less if I go do what I want to do? Why does that bother him? So in some ways, I was thinking the same thing. What, why, why do you care about me? What's it to you? And then, a couple of days later, when I met the Lord through the gospel, then I realized that my darkened mind was clouded and my thinking was askew. And that it was my duty as the creature to worship the Creator and give Him the honor of this do His holy name. Who am I to? The better question is, who am I to tell God how things it should be? Well, we're wonderfully and miraculously made. We look at creation and think that's wonderfully miraculously made. We're, we're miraculous and, uh, and we're the clay and he's the potter. And you say, what right is he? He's got every right to uh, see what he's made. He's so miraculous. We don't see ourselves that eternal soul. It's more miraculous than the heavens and uh, creation because he's going to redo it. But he's not going to redo this eternal soul. Yeah, they're the it's miraculous. Super miraculous. So he's got all the right in the world. But we don't think so. I mean, we're lost. Yeah, well, when we're lost, we think we're the king and we're the God. But the fact is that that's what this Hebrew is going to talk about. The man has a very, very important position in creation. God created humans in his own image, and that's a unique thing. And he also created humans to have dominion over the uh, subhuman the material and life. And how did they say that? Non-rational. Beings on the face of the earth. Yes, Kathy. Yes. Um, the, the original before the fall, even there, it said that Adam was supposed to tend and keep the garden. And so the creation 
the subhuman creation is supposed to be tended to by humans. We're supposed to take care of it. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that the people who are turning to neo-paganism, thinking that it's more environmentally friendly, they had to listen to Vishal Mangalai, who uh, is from India. And he points out that historically, nature-worshipping societies destroy nature. And why? Well, because they think it's nature's job to take care of us, not our job to take care of nature. Do you see the difference? And so if you expect that this impersonal creation is going to just take care of me, if I just let it go, see, their idea is that the less we do, the better. The less we just stay away and just let nature take its course, the better it's going to be. But as a matter of fact, it doesn't work that way. And he points to India as a prime example. They believe for centuries and centuries that that there are these nature gods and what have you, and they destroy their environment there. He says he says people don't treat their gods very well. <laughs> he says whereas Christianity, God is the um, sovereign Lord of the universe, and He commands us to take care of the creation. So we can't. So we're supposed to tend to keep the garden, so to speak. So. That's why paganism doesn't really turn out to be environmentally friendly, though they may claim to be so. Um, Vishal's got a good book on that. Isaiah 40, verse 17. All the nations are in nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. <laughs> wow. Look how great God is. The nations are like, well, they can't do anything to him, can they? God's almighty and all-powerful. Let's go to verse 7. Hebrews 2, 7. Thou hast made him for a little while long, low, a little while, while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and has appointed him over the works of thy hands. Now here it says that right at this point, humans are lower than the angels. I'm not talking about Jesus here yet, because there's a contrast that comes up in verse 9 where it says, but we see him. So he's contemplating still man, right? And God has made man for a little while, temporal term, lower than the angels. So right now, we're lower than the angels. I was debating with some people that are into the spiritual warfare movement, and when I cited Jude and Second Peter 2 is proof that we have, shouldn't be trying to go up into the heavenlies and rebuke the angelic majesties or whatever there is, the, the fallen forces of darkness, and we're not supposed to do that. And I use this proof, Second Peter and Jude, where it says not even Michael the archangel dared do this when he disputed with Satan. You know what they told me? Well, yeah, we know the angels can't do it, but we can because we're, be- we're better than the angels. We have more authority and power than the angels do. They were saying that, uh, that redeemed humans can do what the angels don't dare do. Well, let me tell you two problems with that. Number one, it does no justice to the argument in Jude. Because if you look at the context, Jude's argument was from the greater to the lesser. In other words, his argument was if, if Michael the archangel didn't dare do this, how do you imply the implications that we, of course we better not. 
Jude, Jude presupposes that Michael has a greater place than these false teachers that he's dealing with. Right? And the second problem with it is it doesn't uh, give an account Hebrews 2, which is what I told the people I was debating. It says, not right now. Right now we're lower than the angels. That's what it says. And we don't know very well what's going on in the spirit realm. It's we're not suited for it at this point. We, uh, these demons and spirit beings have been around a lot longer than we have, and they know their way around. Amen. And if we think that somehow we're going to get into an altered state of consciousness and go into their realm and duke it out and come out a winner, um, we're fooling ourselves. And if you want to know more about that, come on February 28th and hear Brian Flynn talk about it, because he did it when he was in the occult. He, he learned how to contact spirits and was very much into that, and they had him deceived into thinking that they were benign, helpful entities that were helping him solve problems and other people's problems. And as he gave psychic readings, he did things that helped people. And if, if you don't know any better, why would you think this nice, warm, loving feeling that you get from the spirit, and then the information helps people solve their problems? If you didn't know any better, why would you think that was bad? He thinks he was in touch with some, you know, mind of the universe or some good thing. And it turns out these are demons that wanted to destroy him. But you found out when he believed the gospel. These things really weren't so warm and friendly after all. They just were masquerading as that. Alright, so the fact is we are lower than the angels and we're, uh, I'll, I'll guarantee you that Michael the Archangel is a lot better equipped to deal with what's going on in the heavenly realm like he did in Daniel than we are. But it says, Thou crowned him with glory and honor, in the sense that humans are the pinnacle of God's creation, in the sense that humans are creating God's image. Now, some people think that this is talking about the future, that what, what God will do after the resurrection, and that this is a prophetic past. In other words, seeing something that will happen as being certain, is speaking of it as if it already happened. Now, there is precedent for that in the Bible. What do they call that? Remember when we studied Isaiah, Dick, the prophetic perfect? And uh, many prophecies in Isaiah are spoken as if they already happened, but yet they were yet future. And we see Jesus speaking that way in John, when he says, Thou hast glorified the Son of Man, but yet it doesn't happen for at least a little while after that. That's a possibility that it's a prophetic past. Otherwise, it is, because it, actually, if you look at verse 8, it says, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So, it's anticipating what will be. Uh, and looking back to what was in the original creation, lamenting the fall, and the fact that now humans are not what God intended them to be, and looking forward to this new creation, this yet future, when God redeem, when redeemed man becomes what God intended to begin with. But what we see at this point is Jesus, who's already gone ahead, and we'll be talking about that here in a bit. So for now, a little lower than the angels, there's a temporal uh, limit to this fact. Crown him with glory and honor, and appoint him over the works of thy hands. Um, so we are take care of the creation. Maybe we get, I have a list of four things here. Number one, God's original intention is in view. 
find in Genesis 1, God's original intention, that humans are to be in God's image, which we are fallen. In some way, humans in general are considered to be image bearers of God now. Noah, Noah or the Noahic account in Genesis 9, even after the fall, said that humans bore the image of God. That's why murder was to be punished with capital punishment. And James, for example, says, with our tongue, we bless God and curse men who are created in God's image. And then that point is considering humans in general, not just Christians. And so therefore, in some sense, the image of God is still something unique to humans. But in our fallen state, and particularly fallen unredeemed, that image is marred and distorted. It's not what ought to be. And in, in redemption, the restoration process has begun. There's this already and not yet idea that we have already received substantial change in victory. And he's making us more and more like Jesus, like we're supposed to be. The not yet is that this restoration to the image of God as God originally intended, and more so, doesn't happen until the return of Christ and the resurrection. So there's a time frame here. So you have God's original intention. Two, the now. The now is something less. Three, but Christ rules, which is what gives us hope. That's Psalm 110 and verse 1, which Ryan told me yesterday he's going to preach on next Sunday. Psalm 110. So but Christ rules, so that gives us hope. He's ascended into to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this section of Hebrews is about Christ and his high priesthood and his exalted status. So the fact that Christ is now exalted and sitting in a majestic place and has given these promises gives us hope that someday this something less situation will be changed. And four, there's a future reversal of the current situation. There's yet a future reversal. Yes, Pete. Okay, um, I think a, a, an easier way to understand it is to realize the difference between legal status and practical outworking, to use a simpler term. What what is perfected uh, instantaneously at regeneration is our the, the fact that we're legally in Christ, justified, set apart for God in that sense, sanctified positionally, and is seated in the heavenlies. That phrase is found in Colossians and Hebrews is to show that we are. Uh, not to be afraid of the hostile spiritual forces in the universe. Okay? There's a context to that. The stoichia. You're almost, you're not supposed to interact with them. It's only just above them, you know, interact with them. You're not, they're not fears, you're not, you just don't mess with them. Yeah. We're in Christ, and so we don't have to worry about what they're going to do to us. That's the, that's the whole message of Colossians and Hebrews. See, the people that are into the spiritual warfare movement, or want to interact with the spirits, albeit in a in a hostile or negative way. But that was what the Colossians and Ephesians were tempted to do, and 
those two epistles are, are correcting that. See, that what we need to do is rest in Christ far above all these things. Yeah. Is that the scripture in Exodus 22, 28? It says, You shall not revile or curse Elohim. The Elohim, when it talks about, it's the same kind of context as Michael. Because the, the Elohim are more, there's the gods. There's a different kind of context in the Old Testament. Oh, really? So that's a good cross-reference to Jude, isn't it? I think it's yeah, that term Elohim is used in several different ways in the Old Testament. It's used for God. But the context has to tell you it's also used for human judges. Jesus mentioned that in John 10. Okay. And it's used for angels. And so the context has to decide. We're going to talk about that lower than angels. But um, the term Elohim can be, can be in angels or gods or the false gods. Okay, so the context has to tell you who is being described by Elohim. Yes, please. What we just recently discussed, I think it be summed up real easily by the word position and condition. Right. Our position in Christ is that we are pure in Christ. But our condition mm-hmm. is that we're still going through the sanctification process. Amen. Amen. That's very good, Dean. That's a good way to remember it because it rhymes. <laughs> Condition and position. Very good. That's that's exactly true. And when we get further into Hebrews, we'll be talking about that. Because there's one verse. When I first saw this when I was at Bible college, it blew me away. And at the time, I had no way to comprehend it because my theology was deficient. But I, uh, it says... By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And I thought, well, wait a second. I I don't get this. If he's already perfected us forever, then why do we still have to be sanctified? Well, what we just said explains it. But when I I was a brand new Christian, I read that. I I don't get it. (laughs) That's what I thought at the time. Okay, so if somebody's struggling with the sin and then they're contemplating their position in Christ, there's there's a lot of theories out there. This is where, you know, this change, this process of change is where all the theorizing happens. I was just talking about a Friday night at that apologetics meeting. Personally, I believe in means of grace rather than, you know, some man-made therapy. Means of grace are what God's provided for all of us, that if we follow them, God will use that. And that is uh, prayer, fellowship, the Word of God. Now, within that is we're provided, He grants us repentance. And there are certain things in the New Testament that would help us, like repentance and forgiveness forgiveness and, and the Lord's discipline, but I don't think we have to fake anything. I think we, we can be honest in, about where we're at and what our needs are and ask our brothers and sisters to pray with us and press forward by grace. And there is one verse that says, reckon yourself dead to sin. So I, that would certainly mean take into account the fact that Christ has died for sins, that you were buried with him in baptism, 
and that sin is no longer your master. Romans 6 tells us to take that into consideration, but it doesn't mean that we're automatically victorious. There's still a process. Did you have an idea? I think the concept there, we can try, and it's good for us to try to control our external actions, but you have lust in your heart, you still got lust in your heart, and God will judge us by what's in our heart, and that doesn't change, we can't change our heart by will. Some people have stronger self-control or self-discipline, and that's a good thing, because it prevents us from externalizing <coughs> things inside of us, but it doesn't make us righteous before God, because God doesn't heart. The only way the heart changes is that we understand the gospel and what Christ has done. Yeah. And really, I think it is when you understand you're a sinner, you really are a sinner, and that's kind of a sinner, but you're your sin. And that he forgave your sins, the gratitude, because you don't deserve it, is what changes your heart, not not anything on a self-control or self-discipline, self-control discipline. And they're a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah, see, if, you, if somebody's angry, you know, if you're angry, that's not a good thing. But if you're angry and you punch somebody, that's the worst thing. At least there's more consequences to it. If you're lustful, you're just lustful. That's one thing. If you're lustful, you commit adultery and all the other stuff on the outside. That's worse. Everybody's family and stuff, that's worse. That is worse, and I think that that ought to be clarified, because I've had people get into real serious sin problems by not understanding that. They go to the, they go to the scripture, and it says, if a man lusts in his heart, uh, he's already committed adultery. Well, that shows us our need for the gospel. Because that, that pulls the rug under, under, from underneath the rich young rulers of the world. Alright? Oh, I'm righteous. I haven't ever done any of these things, so I'm okay. Well, Jesus teaches, he says, you're not righteous, you need the gospel. But some people take that and say, well, you know, I did, I did lust, so I guess I'm already in trouble. I might as well go do the crime. It, it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. One of the places in society, and it's good for society that you don't do things externally, but that doesn't make you righteous before God. It doesn't make you righteous for God, but it's a good thing not to do go commit adultery because you'll destroy your marriage and you're going to be in worse shape. And, it, it, and, it, and when you do repent, you're going to have worse consequences to try to straighten out. Does that make sense? Yes, Pete. You know, everything they say is it, it sounds good, but you know the thing that's Frustrating, and it's only frustrating because of some just personal things right now that I'm going through, and that the realization that um, even though you realize that you are a sinner, and you're attempting to control yourself on the outside, and you know that it's what's going on on the inside, and what's going on in your heart, through this whole conversation, it just seems like you know there's something there that needs to be there because that's just going to control you, and that's going to be the spirit path. So if you're if you're if you understand that in your heart that you've got you've got lust or you've got anger or you've got whatever, the outside can be trying to control and, and, and you know, put the boundaries around whatever you need to do to keep away from any of those sins outwardly. <clears throat> but the thing is, what happened, what I what I think is going on is that the strength comes from the spirit of Christ that is in you. I think that, that's my experience, that when, when I don't lust, because I'm not lustful, then it's easy to control myself, because there's nothing to control. It's like Bob doesn't lust after knitting. No, not knitting. <laughs> I got knitting under control. 
does not show man in his exalted state. We do not look around and see this glorious image bearer of God who displays God's splendor and glory, who treats fellow his fellow man the way he should be, who cares for the creation and tends and keeps the garden, so to speak, as he's supposed to. And so we see something less. The key to man's future status is in Christ, the last Adam. Verse 9 says, but we see him. So very much like in Paul's teaching, we see the position of being in Christ, we see the high call of God, we see the glory and splendor of the creation and what God wants to do with man, but now we don't see what we should. We see a fallen sinner. But our hope as Christians is that because he's exalted and he's gone before, which we're going to see in verse 10, he's the forerunner who's who's gone before and suffered and been perfected through sufferings. And because we see him and keep our eyes on him, we have hope that one day we'll be like him. Amen. And it will be conformed to the image of Christ and that the creation will be restored to its intended place of splendor and that man will be restored to his intended place in the creation and that things will be working the way they're supposed to rather than this degenerated mess we see in the world right now. But, yeah. Only Jimmy Carter can know what you just said. He said before the world that he uh, lusted and he was a sinner. Well, then why would the people out there want to be a Christian? Because they sin, he sins. He should have took a step farther like that. The reason I lost it as President of the United States because I'm a sinner. I need him a Savior. He stopped there. He could only went further. See, the whole world knew he was a sinner and lost it. Yes, I confess before the world I'm a sinner. So the sinners out there go, great. I sin too. Why go to church? And he's a big Christian. Why should I become a Christian? If he could only turn the step far and say, yes, I'm a sinner. I love. And so do you. But I'm the president. Need a savior. So the little guy out there could say, man, he needs a savior. President of the United States. So do I. Take it all away. And that's the trouble with uh, uh, casting off. It's all emotions. You don't feel saved. You don't walk out that door. It's got nothing to do with your emotions. God says it's done. Like the compass said in North, you, you, when you're lost, you go in a circle. You're not feel saved. Everybody's going with feelings. And that's why Jesus says, you don't, Satan don't cast out demons. His house isn't divided. And I always tell all the little children in hell, how are you going to cast out demons when they come to me talking about casting out demons? You know how you cast out demons? The guy that told me the gospel, I went from a general in hell to a private in God's army. The demons were gone as far as my position. So you were I was no longer a child of hell. So you want to recast those demons? Give the gospel. I agree. All right. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember, remember, I remember you know, the demons, but they're the children of hell. I asked them, how can the children of hell cast those demons? I remember demons? when you told me that, Dan. I, I asked if you knew uh, Ron, uh, you know, Carolyn's brother. <laughs> and Dan says, yeah, we used to be generals in Satan's army together. <laughs> <laughs> But I'll have a foot soldier for Jesus. Better to be a foot foot soldier for Jesus than a general in Satan's army. I want you to read a couple paragraphs from Arthur Pink on this Psalm 8 and as it's used here. I thought this was a fantastic commentary on Psalm 8 as used in Hebrews from uh, Arthur Pink, who has a big, thick commentary on Hebrews. Here, then, is we believe the true interpretation and application of Psalm 8. The verses quoted from it in Hebrews 2 refer not to Adam, uh, 
but not to mankind as a whole, nor to Christ himself considered alone, but to his redeemed. The Holy Spirit, through the psalmist, was looking forward to a new order of man, of which the Lord Jesus is the head. In the man Christ Jesus, God has brought to light a new order of man, one in whom is found not merely innocence, but perfection. There's this man, Ephesians 2.15 speaks, to make in himself of two, redeemed from among the Jews and Gentiles, one new man. Also Ephesians 4.13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As God looks at his incarnate Son, he sees for the first time a perfect man in <coughs> excuse me, and us in him, as we, by faith, see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, we discover both the proof and pledge of ourselves, yet being crowned with glory and honor. But we see Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, as the ground and guarantee of our approaching exaltation. Here then is the divine answer to the question asked by the psalmist long ago, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy hands, the moon, the stars, which thou hast made. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Ah, brethren in Christ, when you go out at night and view the wondrous heavens, and when you think of your own utter insignificance, when you meditate upon the glory of God's majesty and holiness, and think of your own exceeding sinfulness, and are bowed into the dust, remember up there is a man in the glory, and that that man is the measure of God's thoughts concerning you. Remember that by wondrous and sovereign grace you've been not only predestined to conform to his image, but you should, as a joint heir in him, share his inheritance. May the Lord grant each Christian reader that faith which will enable him to grasp that wonderful and blissful prospect which the Word of God says before him. Arthur Pink, 1950-something. In a way it works. So you go look at the splendor of the heavens and think about how sinful you are and that God was... Just, only just and not merciful, he would rightfully throw any one of us right into hell. But then, thinking that he, there in the heavens is Jesus, exalted the right hand of majesty on high, who's gone before, who's purchased us, and has promised that one day we would join him in glory, and that we would share um, an inheritance with him, and see the perfection of what God originally intended for human beings when he created Man. So that's the lofty thought here of Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. So right now we don't see what will be seen one day, but we see him. Uh, Tim, could you look up Daniel seven twenty seven and Mary, Matthew 28, 18, and Pete? Uh, okay. Uh, I'll tell you what. Tim, you do Daniel seven twenty seven. Mary... I'm going to give you Ephesians 1, 21 to 22, so that will give you a little time to look it up after Tim quotes his. And then Matthew 28, 18 is for you, Pete. In the meantime, i got another quote here I wanted to find. This takes me a long time to study because I'm using four commentaries. <laughs> I don't want to miss anything. Yes. Yeah, so it talks about this being handed over to the saints. 
interesting uh, in the Old Testament. And then we have Matthew uh, uh, 28, 18. Yeah, so Jesus himself has given all authority, so that's the hope that ultimately he will subject everything to him. And then we had Ephesians 1, 21 and 22. is very similar. Okay. Okay, so there he also talks about the church. First, Christ exalted status, and then he put him over everything, and then it talks about the church, just like in Daniel 7. And so Jesus receives the kingdom, and all of those who are the redeemed are part of the, his inheritance, and we will reign with him. So that's a, that's a mighty, wonderful thought. William Lane says this about this verse. Excuse me. The recital and celebration of the divine intention awakened the expectation that all that had been placed under human dominion at the time of creation would yet be subject to humanity in the world to come. So the already and the not yet. To verse not yes. Christ came down and the sea. He commanded the storm, the wind, and the waves to obey him. When Adam's in the garden, command that kind of stuff, take care of the garden? I don't know. I, I, As I understand it, I think that the original creation was so ordered so that things cooperated anyhow. Didn't you didn't have tornadoes? No. And, and, I, and I assume that's the way the new creation will be? That, that God will make a perfect habitat for humans, and that, I think, verses like in Isaiah, where it talks about the lion, lion laying down the lamb, and the things will actually work. You know, if you notice, uh, for instance, the curse narrative in Genesis, um, the punishment narrative, if you, if you back up in Genesis to paradise, you have Adam tilling and keeping the garden. So he had work. So the curse isn't work. Some people think it is. <laughs> but it's not a curse to work. It's God intended that we would work because he created us in his image and God works. But if you, if you see now, he told them to keep the garden. But then look at what happened when Adam was cursed. He says, now the sweat of your brow and in toil and misery. And, and, and so instead of cooperation, you're fighting. You know, the weeds are growing, the crop fails, and you have droughts. and So man has to, through misery and battle, try to live on the earth and, and feed himself. Whereas in the garden, there was still work to do, but it was productive and blessed. It wasn't considered a sorrow. And I think most of us who are creative and like working, to me, to never be able to work again would sound like a curse. Because we want to use our talents and our gifts, and God will have something for us to do forever and ever, I think. Yeah. At least the musicians will be busy. Okay. So if you look at, if you look at that in 
and you have somebody who worships Christ, that person is worshiping perfection. Christ is the perfect Lord. Yeah. And so it's God and mostly around that. So now if you look at the pagan worship of the land, then the pagans are actually worshiping something that's foul. It's not, that's not perfect. Yeah. Not only is the creation fallen and not what it's supposed to be, because the sin of Adam plunged the whole creation into travail, it says in Romans 8, but it's also impersonal. And that's something that I witnessed. To, there are a lot more pagans out there all the time, at least in America. But paganism is becoming a viable religion for a lot of people. And I have witnessed to pagans. And one of the things I, I keep trying to address, now they disagree with me, is that the creation is impersonal, and as impersonal, it can't care for you. Amen. You know? And, but, but they don't agree with that because they believe that there's this cosmic mind of the universe that's sort of part and parcel, you know, that you can tap into. And so that's why there's this push to get, for the occult and get into an altered state of consciousness, because they're trying to tap into this mind of the universe. And some neo-pagans actually say, we are the earth, no, we are the universe thinking about itself. And I think what they're, with the, what they're after contacting is false spirits. Yeah. And, well, their context is that they're just one speck in a continuum. Therefore, as the earth exists and things feed, and there's, there's life someplace that is good to them, even though they don't experience it directly, so they're becoming impersonal to be participate in this thing in the oneness. That, that is, they become impersonal to participate in an impersonal. I think that's that's an interesting thought, Keith, because as a matter of fact, Hinduism, the ultimate goal is a total loss of a personhood, of self. In other words, self is absorbed back into the whole in Hinduism. And so, the idea that once we are conscious that we are just a tiny part of the continuum of the universe and we found our nirvana, Oh, you mean that earthquake? 41,000, yeah. It shows you that Mother Earth doesn't care about you. If they were personally involved, they could be personally involved. Yeah. Well, see, this, this trend, by the way, is very bad just for... The, the thinking that's becoming prominent is very, very damaging economically and environmentally. Once people um, start looking at that, they begin to think that nature is just going to take care of you, and it's sort of an anti-science, anti-medicine, anti... And, and it's popular now because of the ethos of the younger generation who never had to experience nature trying to kill them. Uh, let me tell you what, I mean, I, I'm personalizing their nature, but I, okay, my grandfather, for example, who began farming in the 1920s, his whole existence, and I knew him up until I was, he died in, when I was in my 30s, so I knew him for a long part of my adult life. My grandfather spent his whole life trying to survive in the face of nature. They, farming in Iowa. They had droughts in the 30s that wiped everything out. They had a dust bowl. They had well, shallow wells they dug that would go dry every August as all the cattle were, were threatened to die of uh, thirst. And he'd have to go with 
whatever horses or whatever they had to try to get water where there was some water. And and and, and all of his the, yeah, they had the locust plate that came through, the grasshoppers. And so all of his life was a continual battle to survive as nature was attacking him. Okay. Now, if you went back in history and told my grandfather, this is Mother Earth and she's going to care for you? <laughs> what? She's trying to kill me. <laughs> All right. Um, you couldn't you couldn't sell that to uh, people from the a hundred years ago. But what's happened is that because of technology and modern farming techniques and, and drill well, he, he's one of the first in that whole county to have a drill well. On our farm, when I was a kid, we had a four hundred foot drill well that went four hundred feet down into an aquifer. My grandpa conquered nature. Yeah. We have water. 12 months a year. That tasted like sulfur. It smelled like it. I suppose you could sell it now for mineral, you know, for good. But but you can't, you know, the, the young people grow up, and you just go to the grocery store, and there's more food than anybody could ever want. Yeah. But even in the pagan cultures, if you look across the world, most of their religion is that was their way to conquer nature through appeasement of some Time or other Deities, yeah. either against the drought. You have people even now, you're living yeah. in the kind of drought times that's gonna conquer nature that way. You have, that was their technology to deal with the hostile nature, wasn't it? They thought nature was yeah, see that's a that's a good point. The ancient the ancient pagans thought na- nature was hostile too, but it, it was controlled by deities and demigods. And you had to appease them to get what you wanted. But the modern neo pagans that I had this pie in the sky nature it's just going to take care of you. At least the old ones do. They wanted to kill you. So they're now instead of offering sacrifices to the gods, now they just uh, go out on the equinox. Isn't that when they do it? Yeah, they go on an equinox and they dance around in the moonlight. And say, Thank you, nature. All right. So we definitely need to recover a Christian worldview on this idea, and our children need to be taught clearly what a biblical worldview is because they're not going to get it in the schools and they're not going to get it in college and they're not going to get it from their peers. The general worldview that's held out there now is pagan. Alright? Okay, so we uh, don't yet see what God's intention for man is. Notice how Christianity elevates humanity in some ways if, if it sees value in human life as being image bearers of God. And that's another thing you see that's once Christianity is pushed aside as far as Western civilization, you will see lesser concern for the value and dignity of human life. Because most of the cultures in the world don't care much about human life. It's expendable. Yes? Wouldn't in some ways even for some of the punishment for that also be an acknowledgement of the value of the importance of it? You don't punish Something, some little nothing that did something. That's something that's powerful or something that's worth something. You do punish because you don't want it to happen. Yeah, that's a good point. Lake's point out that why would there be eternal punishment or punishment of humans? Well, because humans are rational beings and bearing the image of God have moral culpability. Whereas a non-rational being is not morally culpable. That, yeah, that makes sense. Did, 
that if we were just a piece of rock, there would be no point of punishing us. Okay? So, yeah, that, the, the, the whole point of, of justification and final judgment says that man is important and that our actions count. Wasn't Immanuel Kant that came to sort of a pragmatic idea about God? Who studied philosophy? I guess it has to be just me then. I think that it was Kant who, uh, yeah, I, see, he, he, he's usually considered an enemy of Christianity because of his rationalistic premises. But after he um, did other philosophy, he came up with this idea that you, there has to be a God for life to make any sense. It's a pragmatic idea. Kant came up and said that if there is no God, and if there is no judgment after this life, then the consequence of that would be that all actions are equal. And that being a wicked, evil abuser makes just as much sense as being a kind-hearted person. Because if there's no God to make things right, the fact is that in this life people do prosper doing evil. And there has to be a God, otherwise actions can't have any meaning. And so then he came up with, after he debunked religion in his first work, he comes up with a pragmatic reason for having religion, which was you needed somebody to make things right so that our actions matter. Yes. I think what Lake was saying, if I'm mistaken, was that even the people who are so loudly pro-animal rights, even in their vehemency for their cause, saying, no, you, it's very wrong to have some human killing a rat in the laboratory. And even in in their uh, opposition to the issue, they're acknowledging some supremacy in the human race mm-hmm. because one adult and Africa are telling it out. They don't go like, hey, you're blood animal rights. <laughs> I, know. I I understand. See, that's, the, that's one of the Achilles heels of all the pagan views is that you need some source for your morality. That article that I got published in the Star and Trib, I pointed that out. Where do you get morality from evolution? But, so a person says, I believe in certain true right and wrong. In other words, I believe, as Carr was saying, I believe it's wrong for a human to kill any kind of animal. Well, how do you, where did you get that morality? Where did, what basis do you have for your idea about what's right and wrong? Well, it comes from the fact that you're created in God's image and you're able to think in moral categories. And if you believe that that's true, then you already distinguish between man and beast. All right. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, well, we got into a lot of topics today, didn't we? All because somebody asked, what is man? Very, very profound uh, question. And we're going to next week see Jesus here, not literally, but we will see him. Good. <laughs>